Data protection is a top priority with today's work from home workforce. However, current data loss prevention tools inadequately protect data in cloud or SaaS offerings from insider threats. SecureCircle automatically protects data as it leaves SaaS services such as GitHub, AWS, and Salesforce. The protection is transparent to users and works with any application to persistently protect data, even source code. Secure your data with SecureCircle's Zero Trust Data Protection. Begin your 30-day free trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash SecureCircle. You want to get the right things done for your security program. Sounds simple, but what are the right things for you? What does done mean? And how are you going to get there? Rapid7 realizes more than anyone how hard this can be. While Rapid7's Insight platform offers you industry-leading vulnerability management and detection and response solutions, their focus is on understanding where you are so that they can help you get where you're going. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Rapid7 to get started. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. If you have a specific guest or topic you want us to cover on one of the shows, submit your guest suggestions to securityweekly.com forward slash guests, complete the form, and we'll review suggestions on a regular basis and reach out to you once they have been reviewed. Mr. Jeff Mann is, of course, the respected information security advocate, advisor, evangelist, international speaker, keynoter, and host of Security and Compliance Weekly, co-host on Paul Security Weekly, Tribe of Hackers, Tribe of Hackers Red Team, Tribe of Hackers Security Leaders, Tribe of Hackers Blue Team, and currently serving uh, in a consulting advisory role for online business systems. Jeff, welcome to Enterprise Security Weekly. Secure, he forgot security curmudgeon. He did forget curmudgeon. Forgot former, uh, former NSA cryptographer. Is that the proper title? NSA cryptographer and uh, one of the founding members of the first NSA red, what came to be called Red Team. We didn't and refer to ourselves also as a Red Team back then. Original code breakers on the puzzle, the code uh, that's at the CIA headquarters, right? I was telling my my family that that story, right? Yeah, the. Uh, the uh, it's it's a statue called Cryptos, and it's in the courtyard of the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. I was uh, a, a cryptanalysis intern at the time, and we took a field trip to to CIA and and got a tour of the facility. And we were very chagrined to see that a Cryptos cryptography statue was at CIA because mm-hmm. they weren't the code breakers. Right. We were NSA the code breakers. Was, right? Yeah. So a bunch of us got the idea of copying it down on scraps of paper. We took it you back. You didn't just take a picture with your cell phone? And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> that would have been we with took his... an et- We took an etching. An we etching. had these little tablets that yeah. had kind of tar on them, and we had a stick. And we just wrote it down really quick. I thought it was like a stone and, and did um, like a hammer with a chisel. <laughs> <laughs> he used his Polaroid. Yeah. <laughs> rice, rice, rice paper and uh, quill pen. Uh, but so you, you were a part of the team um, that broke. So was it uh, the code was broken in three parts? Is that what I remember from the article? There's 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 four messages mm-hmm. that make up the entire statue three of the four messages were broken we broke you know years ago the fourth one has never been broken by anybody mostly because it's such a short message it's only like 27 mm-hmm. characters uh, don't quote me but it, it's it's relatively short the uh, artist that created the thing is getting old and and is hoping to see his puzzle solved before he kicks and he's been periodically over the last couple of years giving out clues the most recent clue 
uh, I want to say the end of last year, beginning of this year, he, 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 you know, he's, he's given away about five or six of the characters of mm-hmm. the, mm-hmm. you know, what the message is supposed to be. I, I haven't been keeping up with it, you know, for some reason so I've they been busy doing nothing. We, we haven't and, broken and on the, lockdown. we haven't broken the, the fourth code basically. Correct. And gotcha. and when it's all said and done, it's supposed to tell us a, a story. There's supposed to be a message mm. that not only is the message, but it's supposed to relate to other artifacts that are in the courtyard. I mean, I haven't been there in 30 yeah. some odd years, um, but there, you know, what, what was described to us was it all works together and it all makes mm. sense once you solve the puzzle. Yeah, that's, that's really, that's really. So cool. it's not like Semper Fi. Maybe someday. It's awesome. Uh, you can read it. You can read about it. I yeah, have there was a, a great article you covered There's on a, a PS- Wired article yeah. that talks about it. Yeah, and and it, they must have done a FOIA request because they they it was a very accurate article, and I'd forgotten some of the details. But when I read the article, I was like, oh yeah, we did do that. Mm. That's cool. <laughs> so whoever wrote the article, good job. And now you're working on mapping miter attack to PCI DSS. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this was kind of a, it was an interesting challenge, I think, uh, from Security and Compliance Weekly. We were talking about, you know, these different mappings, and, mm. and Jeff's like, well, you know, I, I want to go and break down kind of a mapping between the MITRE attack framework and PCI, so you've had time to do it, it sounds like. I did finally take the time to do it, and... uh it really didn't, you know, once I sat down and actually did it, it, it didn't take that long. I spent more time, frankly, trying to learn the MITRE ATT&CK framework itself and, and get a good enough working knowledge of it that I felt like I could do a credible job trying to do the mapping. Um, so, uh, you know, if if you would indulge me, I have a few slides I could share. Please The do. floor is yours. You were so quiet on the last segment. That's because I don't care about tech companies that much. <laughs> all right. To me, it's all about the people and the processes, not about the technology. Just saying. So this is, uh, I put it together in terms of a presentation. I'm, I'm actually going to be presenting this talk at the uh, PCI community meeting in North America, which, of course, like everything else, is a virtual event now. I think it's the beginning of October. as well, And because it's virtual, I get to also do the European meeting because they're pre-recording it and it's going to be available as video on demand. But I can say that I'm speaking at the PCI community, both in North America and Europe. So that's kind of cool. You just don't get to uh, fly over the pond. You don't get to go overseas. Overseas to Canada. I might I can I can walk over my creek in the backyard maybe. That's what I'll do. Um so anyway, let me get this thing fired up. There's my contact information. You know, if anybody wants uh, yeah, everybody knows how to get in touch with me at this point these days. Actually, somebody called me like a month ago. They were watching a recording of a talk and they're like, "Well, you put your number up there. I'll, I'll give you a call." Mm-hmm. Um so these are the, these are presentation slides. I tried to trim out the audience participation type slides, but you know, just to get to the the meat of what I want to to share with you guys. And please feel free to interject uh, and interrupt with questions. Um, you know, I first was introduced to Attack Framework probably on one of the episodes of Paul Security Weekly. You know, we we seem to talk about it fairly often. Mm. I know we've had a couple different companies on talking about how their products map to uh, the attack framework or how, how well they, do they uh, detect 
certain activities that are reflected in the attack framework and so on and so forth. Um, uh, I actually, you know, the the most memorable episode was 612 when we had Katie Nichols, who's no longer with MITRE, but she gave us the most complete dive uh, on MITRE attack framework. And that's where I started getting the idea. Uh, and I'm a pragmatist, uh, among other things. Uh, I, I'm, I, I listen to all this talk about the attack framework and what it can do and all the things that it does and how well you can use it to attack or how well can you test your defenses and so on and so forth. And, but to me, I'm like, but at the end of the day, if you're doing this against a company, the company's going to, you know, want to know what the bottom line is and okay, if you were successful, what do we have to do to fix things? So what I was most interested about what uh, learning about the MITRE attack framework was getting to the, okay, so you break in all these different ways based on current, you know, real-world attack scenarios and, and, and attack methods or techniques is what they call them, which I think is cool, and I think it makes sense. And I think it's an interesting way to attack a problem that we talk about pretty often, which is, you know, the, the industry has given you this, this whole dumpster full of vulnerabilities, and there's new ones every week. What do you do with all this? So all the companies that are trying to sort out the, you know, like our former employer, we gave you the 10,000 vulnerabilities. Now we're going to help you prioritize and figure out what to do first and what where do you get the most bang for your buck and how do you prioritize things you know the other thing that uh that uh episode underscores is that i need to get some more new shirts (laughs) (laughs) it looks like a right faux pas probably the same laptop too the 612 Um, 660 well that's like 50 episodes different laptop same shirt it was like last it was last october i think yeah it's been over a year we do 44 episodes a a year so it's been a while hey jeff one of the things i want to know if you've realized or or figured out is will Mm -hmm. the miter attack framework actually help with prioritization i i'm wondering if you took a key takeaway of how you could use the attack framework as a prioritization mechanism with some of these vulnerabilities uh, and, and exploits. So I'm, I'm just curious. Um, hold that thought and, and let me get in, you know, let me get through the introductory part and we'll jump into the, my findings. And I, I, I certainly, I think will address at least that question. I don't know if I'll answer it, but I, I think it, it comes up as part of the observations and hopefully we can talk about ways to use the attack framework to help, prioritization all right so um it's a good question um i like to start my talks with and you know i do it a lot on the show of just you know what are the terms that we're talking about and and, you know i'll just blow through this very quickly because you guys have heard my spiel before uh we're talking the basic risk equation which is very very simplified terms like risk and vulnerabilities and threats and what i learned is countermeasures which you know i would argue is what what security mostly is these days um I actually get my definitions from an, an authoritative sur- source, which uh, is the InfoSec glossary. Uh, we used to call it the ComSec glossary back in the day. But this is something that you can download. You can find it online. Don't take my word for it. So here's the definition of risk. I'm not going to read it to you. Here's the definition of a vulnerability, keyword weakness that could be exploited. Uh, threats are anything that could happen that's bad. Uh, I learned it early on, 
as as the who's threats are the bad guys and i still kind of believe that this is actually a def a revised definition that's evolved given the technological advances and then finally countermeasure and and this is where i was hoping that john would uh stick around for this talk and uh, based you know he said he was going to was he's we've been chatting on discord um you know what? He, what he was offering is okay. If you can't fix the vulnerabilities, what's left? Well, that's what the risk equation is about. It's that's when you do security, and a lot of security is monitoring and detection. Uh, he referred to it as a compensating control, which is a popular PCI term, by the way. But I would just simply call it. It's a countermeasure. It's security. It's what you do. You can't fix all the vulnerabilities. You can't eliminate all the threats. When you've done what you can do to 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 address those things, what's left is what's security is the essence of security. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the MITRE ATT&CK framework. Um, I know we've talked about it a lot on the air, but uh, you know, every time I go to the MITRE ATT&CK website, I'm overwhelmed because you can't look at it on one screen, which is probably the most, well, you can put it on one screen, but then you can't read it because it's, 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 it's pretty complex if you were. Um, but this is their definition of it. Um, I went out and found some, you know, companies that are talking about attack frameworks. Some of these companies are ones that we've talked to or about, um, you know, so they kind of describe what is attack framework. A um, couple more. Why, why bother with the TAC framework? And, and we've, you know, this is reflected in some of the uh, interviews we've had. I, I think the most, one of the most recent ones was with the Elastic guys. Um, you know, when they were talking, I'm, I probably have a slide on it where they were talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the MITRE sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of, they, they didn't want to call it a bake-off, but it was essentially a bake-off. They emulated one of the APTs, and then they tried to, you know, evaluate a bunch of different products and see how well they held up or how well they detected. But <clears throat> in terms of just a real broad overview, the MITRE attack framework starts with what they call tactics and they have 12 categories of tactics and the tactics are defined of defined as sort of the objectives the things that a bad guy and attacker would do uh in your in your network in your enterprise to try to get to some end result it's not necessarily the end game it's it's one of the steps one of the activities that they would do so and they've identified 12 categories we're all pretty much familiar with that where it gets tricky though is the actual attacks what they call techniques there's 266 of them and that's what doesn't fit too well on a mm. single screen um here, here's the 12 attack uh, uh 12 tactics listed out uh conveniently numbered one through 40 i haven't figured that one out yet i still have work to math do. is hard um as we found out on the, bsw the other night oh yeah doug hubbard yeah what's that he said math is hard. I said, as we found out oh, with Doug Hubbard yes. uh, on BSW on yeah. last night. Yeah. yeah, not even counting from zero do I get to 40. But <laughs> um, the techniques they have, they're all cataloged. They have you know ID numbers, names, description of them. There's, at least when I put the slides together, I think the number is still true. There's 266 of them. And again, the most important thing about this is the, these are – 
uh, curated and, and harvested from all sorts of different reports and activities. It's real world. This is what the real bad guys are doing to real companies and real enterprises out, out in the world. So it, it's, it's meant to be real world, which, again, I, I think that's one of the, the, the more compelling uh, aspects of the attack framework. But what I was most most interested in, as I said earlier, is, okay, but what do you do to fix the things? And it turns out that they have, um, for every, for every uh, technique, they list what the mitigation were. In some cases, there's multiple mitigations, and they have them categorized into 40 different separate, 40, technically 41 different mitigations. Um, and those are kind of interesting. And, and this is what I was most interested in mapping to the PCI data security standard. Because I, I, my, my hypothesis going into this was, I'll bet you just about everything they recommend as a fix, as a mitigation, is something that you're supposed to be doing if you're, if you're subject to PCI. So, so that was my, my yeah. hypothesis that yeah. I wanted to test. So, yes, Jeff, Matt. yeah, I think that's a really good point, right? Because my first question was, where do you do the mapping? Do you do the mapping to the tactics, to the technique, or to the mitigation, right? Because, you know, 12 explodes right. into 266, but then comes back down to 41. What is it that you map to? Right. Well, so, you know, fast forward, what I mapped to was the mitigations. But, uh, um, you know, when I shift gears, let me just finish off, you know, they... they uh, the description of attack framework. They identify a bunch of the different hacking groups, the APTs, and they they will emulate them. They make sure that you know this is a lot of the source of the, of the attack techniques, and but they categorize them so they'll you can click on any one of these and they'll say, you know, APT seventeen typically uses techniques three eighty seven forty three two twenty one sixteen eight, and and more often or not their tactics. Are are doing this, doing this, and doing this. So they have they have it all mapped out in terms of sort of the behaviors of the APTs, which again I think is kind of cool. I think that's worthwhile uh, research and, and worthwhile data points for for people to have. But jo um, uh, Jeff, this is the I one just... I was talking about. I think this is the one that Elastic was doing was APT twenty nine emulation. Yeah, I, I, well, I just want to point out that uh, I think minor attack is great, right? And You've, I, they've identified certain techniques, right? And one of those techniques could be mm -hmm. process injection. And that's great. You might be able to mm -hmm. detect, air quotes, process injection. But now you've got to do that across right. major operating systems. And what are all the different process injection techniques? Various ways in, in doing that. You may be able to detect 60% of Windows process injections, mm -hmm. right? But that leaves the other 40%. Right. So I, I think that's one kind of caveat to MITRE ATT&CK is that there are sub-techniques within all of the, the techniques, right? It, it, I mean, it's not a knock, because again, it, if you can detect 60%, you're probably in much better shape than a lot of organizations <laughs> out there, you know, in doing that. Right. But uh, each of these techniques... Uh, breaks down into various sub-techniques. So, like, you're not done if you can make the, the checkbox or whatever that I can detect process injection. Yes, right. today you might be able to detect mm -hmm. a certain number of different process injection techniques, but 
What about the ones that haven't been disclosed yet? What about the ones that mm-hmm. you're not detecting? And how does that transfer across not just different major operating system categories, but all the different versions of Windows and whether or not you can detect, prevent, and respond to those techniques on the different platforms. You may be running an operating system where that particular process injection technique, you, you can't really mitigate on that platform very easily. Yeah. Uh, I see you've, you've fallen into the classic trap, the second most classic trap. The first one is don't get you know, caught in a land war in Asia. But um, <laughs> no, no you're, you're pointing out something that's very important. I, I was actually talking to uh, uh, George Achilles. Uh, I'm not sure mm. if I'm pronouncing mm-hmm. his name correctly, from Scythe, uh, just yep. in the last week or so, because they, he had seen this. I, I gave this presentation uh, at, a, at a virtual meetup uh, about a month ago, and he actually uh, watched it and, and wanted to talk about it, you know, obviously in reference to what Scythe does. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was one of the things that we talked about was the fact that, uh, you know, one of my fears and one of their fears, and you're sort of articulating, uh, you know, a, a generality of the fear is that if you get too spun up around attack, the framework and think you're protecting against a specific thing, you know, you know, how long have we known attackers to just, you know, come up with a variation, whether it's in technique or whether it's in a, you know, a form of uh, malware or something like that, that defeats the signature based, uh, you know, detection monitoring, even behavior based, right? I talked to a gentleman who, uh, his name was Bill, uh, I can't remember how to pronounce his last name. He was 19 years old, came up mm. with novel ways to implement Windows rootkits based on research that he had done earlier in his career, which is amazing because he's 19, right? Uh, right? On developing cheats for video games, right? Right, right. So uh, something that George and, and uh, uh, one of his guys, uh, and I apologize, I forget his name off the top of my head, and I don't want to miss misspeak, but we were talking about how you know what they're trying to emphasize with their product. I'm not trying to endorse it or anything, but you know, in the context of the attack framework, they think the most useful application of the attack framework is to teach people not a specific technique, but right. sort of the generality. This is what these techniques look like. Yep. And there might be many variations of them out there, and you should try to figure out how to be able to defend against them, prevent them, you know, detect them, and respond Agreed. to them. So, similar no, to the yeah, conversation yes, we had I, with I, John sentiment. in the first segment, right? Yeah. On the bootloader stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's variations of those secure bootloaders yeah, and, and things, right. right? So, yeah. Well, and also the, the Scythe platform is fantastic. Bryson uh, and his team have done a phenomenal job uh, on that product. So, And I've seen it firsthand. So, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. So, anyway, uh, yes, I agree with you. So, flipping over to, you know, then PCI, um, you know, I don't assume that anybody, you know, has a, a, a good grasp of PCI at the outset, and that's proven accurate just about every day. But uh, in case you've never looked at it, PCI at a high level describes six goals for a security program broken up into 12 requirements. So this is kind of the, the breakdown. Um, 
in these 12 requirements, there's roughly 400, 450 uh sub sub requirements specific controls it's depending on how you slice it and dice it but more or less there's about somewhere between 400 and 500 specific controls and what's tricky about pci is it's meant to be all or nothing you're 100 percent pass or you fail uh which is problematic uh, as you can imagine um so how do we map attack to PCI DSS. When I first started thinking about it, you know, everything I'd heard about uh, the attack framework was in terms of red teaming, penetration testing, uh, you know, maybe teaching your, your defenders, your, your blue teamers, can they detect and respond? So in PCI language, what that, what, and this is sort of beginning to address uh, your question, Matt, of how do you how do you approach the map, the actual mapping? What do you actually map? You know, my going into this position, uh, uh, in, my going in position was thinking, well, you know, probably most people are going to think that attack has uh, the attack framework has something to do with the penetration testing element of PCI, or maybe possibly the annual risk assessment. You know, if you're if you're using attack as some sort of tabletop or or, or you know. Uh, live fire exercise in, in your organization or, or testing either your products or your people, your program in terms of incident response, you know, executing the activities of APT 14 or whatever and see how well you hold up against it. Uh, you know, that that's sort of what I think most people would think of that know a little bit about PCI, know a little bit about the attack framework and want to put the two together. But that's not where I wanted to go. Um, again, I, I focused on the, let's cut to the chase. What are the problems? What did you exploit? How do you fix it? I, I, I asked the same question to people that do penetration testing. If you find a problem, what's the fix? It's not to install the patch. It's not to change the configuration more times than not. It's there's something wrong with your security program that allowed this vulnerable condition to exist in the first place that really shouldn't have if you were doing things reasonably well, PCI or otherwise, and shouldn't shouldn't have been able to have been exploited by the pen test. Um, so my focus being on the mitigations, the 41 things uh, that you, are the fixes. And, and and like you were saying, Paul, about sort of the variations of the techniques, I think that's also true as as far as the mitigations too. These are categories of mitigation that, you know, to, to, um, to mitigate a specific even of the 266 techniques uh, requires a variation of the mitigation, but it, it still fits into what they came up with as 41 different categories. Are you with me so far? Yes, sir. With you. Okay, so what I did simply was I listed out all the uh, 41 mitigations. I put them into a spreadsheet, and I I copied the description. And as I first started jumping into it and started looking at the first couple mitigations, I realized very quickly that, wow, there's a couple PCI requirements that kind of could address this problem or, or, or it fits into this category of mitigation. So I ended up blowing it out to, I limited it myself to three categories, but um, I, I gave myself room for uh, listing three different PCI requirements that address the mitigation. And I just went through, fortunately, there's only 41 of them. Uh, and I just went through and I, I pretty much had the PCI standard memorized. I, I mean, I had it open just as a reference so I could cut and paste the actual requirement. But, you know, I, 
I've been doing PCI long enough that I can read the mitigation and I say, oh, that's a little bit of two, that's a little bit of six, that's a little bit of eight. Let me go get the specific requirements and drop them in. So I just put it out on, on a spreadsheet and and came up with a complete list of all the 41 different mitigations. Um, what I what I did then was once I did the mapping, I, I thought, okay, well, what are, what am I going to do with the results? How, you know, how do I how do I slice it and dice it and, and report it and, and, and make it meaningful. Um, so what I initially did was uh, I realized as I was doing the, the actual mapping uh, that there were really kind of four different categories of sort of degree of relevancy, if you will. Um, there were several of the requirements that, you know, the, the mitigation says – uh, you know, do a vulnerability scan, for example. And I'm like, well, that's a PCI requirement. So that's sort of a one-to-one -one direct relationship. Yeah, that's exactly in PCI. Uh, anti, you know, have an antivirus program running is another example of, in fact, I think I have, I'm jumping the gun a little. I think I have slides for examples. But but basically explicit is, is it's pretty much verbatim what the mitigation in the, in the attack framework is, is an actual explicit PCI requirement. The next category then was what I was calling implicit, where you know, verb, it may not be word for word verbatim what the mitigation is talking about, but if you understand what it's talking about and what it's asking for, what it's requiring, and you know a little bit about security and you know a little bit about PCI, which I do, you know, you can like, okay, well, that, 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 that drops into this bucket, that drops into this requirement, that drops into this requirement. So I know it, people that work with PCI would know it, but it's not word for word. It's not completely obvious. So I call that implicit. Uh, the next category was sort of a, a, an, another degree of separation where, that I just simply called you need to squint. And this was a couple of the, of the mitigations where I felt like, okay, I know what they're talking about. I know what PCI is talking about. And I could see it fitting into this requirement, but nobody or very few people would get that just from, especially if they're just reading the PCI requirement and thinking, okay, this is going to cover me for things like the attack framework. It's there, but it's just kind of subtle. So I, called, I, I call that need to squint. The last category, which is a weird category, the 41st mitigation in the, in the attack framework, and I, I have not taken the time to understand the significance of this, but it, basically the 41st mitigation is don't do anything because the fix is worse than the problem. Hmm. Uh, paraphrasing o almost what, almost like john's scenario earlier say, with the firmware discussion <laughs> yeah. right almost yeah. don't fix it because it might be worse to however a system that is bricked and does not boot is really really secure it's super secure super secure uh secure. your third category i would call it need beer goggles Fair enough. I mean, whatever <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever your your choice of euphemism is, but it's uh, it, it works. But it, you know, you have to kind of know what you're looking at, type of thing. So, uh, you know, those are the categories. Um, in terms of the uh, of the findings, you know, here's here's examples of the explicit mappings. They call for vulnerability scanning as a mitigation. They call for antivirus, anti malware to be installed. They call for you to have password policies and disable and remove features of programs. That's all stuff that's in PCI verbatim directly.
So one for one explicit mappings. Couple examples of what I would call the implicit is like Active Directory configuration. Um, PCI calls for secure configurations of all the systems, but it doesn't technically have anything in the PCI standard itself that mentions Active Directory, directory explicitly. So you know it's there, but it's right. not word perfect another example which is it's it's an interesting example is one of the mitigations is network segmentation which is effectively done by every pci customer Mm -hmm. but it's technically not a pci requirement right it is isolate your cardholder data in an environment to exclude everything else from the pci requirement right so you a, don't have to pay as much on your PCI compliance assessment, but B, you don't have to do security anywhere else. That may sound funny, but that's how a lot of my customers treated it, which is why I always tried to steer them away from not doing network segmentation in general because there's there's good reasons to do network segmentation. It creates layers of security, defense in depth. There's good reasons to do it. And not so good reason to do it is to try to you know, limit your weasel scope. your way out of doing well, basic security it, that you should Jeff, be doing every any everywhere anyway. You and I talked about this. Does and and I say this with serious like before we had this real world example that you and I spoke uh, about uh, with the cigar lounge next door, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would say this as a joke, but now I say this really seriously. Does the Windows firewall speak to network segmentation? Right. I, I, uh, it, it 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 depends on who you ask. Yeah, really. It, there is no like clearly defined answer. I no. mean, my my answer as a security practitioner is enable the Windows firewall and do VLAN, you know, virtual network segmentation and or physical network segmentation where there's actually separate physical switches, right? Well, it's ironic because you know, speaking for PCI, because there is no requirement to segment your network there's never been any real clearly defined definition of what network segmentation is yeah now having said that uh they have evolved in in the current version of the data security standard it it has gone so far as to uh be explicit in saying you know if you're doing an internal versus external network penetration test where in the early days of PCI they assumed it was your entire network internet facing or somewhere on the inside mm. uh, they've they've gone so far as to say well if you're segmenting your network so you have a, a what they call the card data environment so a a, a sub sub network some sub sub segment of your en- enterprise is the card data environment um, they they acknowledge explicitly, okay, so the rest of your internal environment from the PCI perspective is now untrusted. So make sure your external penetration test accounts for the fact that you're not just coming from the internet and maybe you're not even coming close to hitting the CDE because it's layers deep in your network. You got to test from somewhere outside of your trusted area, your, your trusted card data environment, meaning from within your network, but it's outside of your PCI CDE, your your segmented environment, and that that is what they now mean by an external penetration test. For for example, so they they they've 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 added 
sort of sub requirements to the requirements of if you're doing segmentation, make sure you address that appropriately in things like penetration testing and vulnerability scanning to prove that your segmentation is is effective without defining what it is. Mm. It's a work in progress. Mm. But we digress. Um, the uh, the need to squint. These were a couple, and there was only a handful of them, three or four or five, where I'm like, yeah. In fact, this might be all of them. I have a really hard time saying that I know what they're saying here, and I could try to fit it into a PCI requirement. But if somebody was just looking at the PCI requirements, there really isn't any way that they're going to jump to this conclusion and mm-hmm. do this type of activity. That's sort of the, my my logic. Uh, uh, of okay, it's really hard to get there, but it's there, but it's really hard to get there. So well, need, well, need okay. to squint or wear the whatever the Matt said about the the, the goggles. Uh, yeah, but but boot integrity is a great tie into what we were talking about with John earlier, right? That's where, why I wanted John to come back. Yeah, yeah now I see why is because where does boot integrity and vulnerabilities in the boot yeah. cycle actually exist in a requirement like vulnerability management? It's not explicit. And, and for most people, they wouldn't necessarily see it, Jeff. It's, it's, it really isn't. I mean, it, you know, it's not in, it's not in vulnerability management, which you could, we could argue for a while of where that is in PCI. It's not in configuration standards because who builds configuration standards for the hardware? It, it's all about, like you were saying on the earlier segment, Matt, it's all about the operating system and, and the software. Uh, I, you know, I'm sure there's exceptions out there, but very few organizations i can't think of one organization that i've ever worked with that had hardware level firmware level boot level uh configuration standards very i mean they're probably out there but very rare right uh, and certainly not explicitly or even implicitly found in in the pci or any requirements that i can think of somebody on the discord server said something about um you know, referencing something about the BIOS that sounded a little bit familiar. It's probably in 853 somewhere. I'm sure it's addressed somewhere, but just not anything that I've seen recently. Anyway, so these are the the need to squints, and 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 so what it ended up. If you added the explicits, the implicits, and the need to squints all together, and, and excuse me, and exclude the last one, which is do nothing. As I suspected, the vast majority of uh, the mitigations are addressed by the PCI data security standards. So I, I figured out how to make a cool little graph picture here in PowerPoint. I was so happy and proud of myself. Um, but here's some of sort of my bullet points. Uh, I got 35 out of the 40. There's effectively 40 mitigations if you discount the do do nothing one 35 out of the 40 are either explicitly implicitly or you need to squint addressed by the pci data security standard um but i i i acknowledge that okay some of these you really have to kind of know security and know your systems and know what know what the attack framework is talking about know what the data security standard is talking about to connect the dots so not anybody's going to sit down and read the two document documents and make the connections um then i started like looking back at okay i I feel like i wrote some of the requirements down more than once and so i went back and counted and it turns out that one 
requirement in particular, 2.2, which is develop configuration standards for all your system components mm. Mm. and its associated sub-requirements, are uh, the heart of mm. the 12 out of the 40 mitigations. They, they're answered by... This, this is a configuration problem. This is a uh -huh. configuration problem. This is making sure you're fixing something and having a secure configuration. And, and this is where it becomes starts to become interesting, Matt, in terms of your uh, you know helping to answer your question. Um, it might be worthwhile if you remember it to restate the question because I know this is where I wanted to bring it up again. The prioritization but, okay. side, right? This is yeah. This prioritization. Is, yeah. yeah. And, and what I think is interesting here is, look, I talk about this a lot because I built the PC, uh, the policy compliance module at uh, at Qualys uh, on mm -hmm. a lot of the work that I was doing around configurations in the GRC space. And one of the areas where I think we lack or it's not as sexy in security, is this concept of configuration management. And mm -hmm. what you just pointed out is configuration or misconfiguration is one of the main areas where if you did it better, you would have a lot more mitigations for some of these attacks in place. But we don't focus on configuration management as much as we do vulnerability management, for example. So Someone once right. said misconfiguration leads to compromise. Well, we see yeah. that in a lot of breaches. We that, that absolutely was, that, see it. That was, oh, me. So you, that was oh. me, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> in like Somebody really two, famous and really two, smart. Two, I didn't say that. Uh, in 2007 <laughs> no, or so. In <laughs> 2007 right. or so, right? It, but we focus on all these security controls, and we're doing vulnerability management, and we're throwing in SIMs, and we're doing log correlation. We're doing all this stuff, and then... Some system somewhere is misconfigured, which is the entry point to a breach, but yet mm -hmm. no one's really, really, like, all excited about doing configuration management really, really well. And, and what you're saying here, Jeff, is 30% of these mitigations are due to basically misconfiguration or not having good conf configuration standards in place. That. That's that's but a big having, chunk. It, but that's a great point, Matt. Not having configuration standards in place. In other words, there's no standard or guidance that is telling you how you should configure those. And I, I went through this with configuring our uh, RTMP proxy, right? And th there were two things that when I looked at it, again, there was no... Uh, uh, hard and fast guidance or, or standard that was pointing me to this, but, uh, you know, just my experience pointing me to there is no encryption uh, in this configuration uh, of RTMP, and there is also an authentication uh, component that can be configured either insecurely or not, right? And it's like leading up to Okay, I want to have a configuration that is both uh, using an encrypted protocol that's using SSL properly, and there is an authentication component of that. And those two together, in my assessment, represented a secure configuration, mm -hmm. right? You leave out any of those two components, that's where most of the guidance on the internet will lead you to either not using SSL at all or not using authentication or using authentication without SSL, which is completely useless in my assessment because essentially you're transmitting the password in clear text. I'm like, that doesn't work, right? 
And it comes down to like, how, how do we even know how to configure some of these services securely? Well, that's what CIS is for. That's what the D- yep. uh, the, the STIGs are for, supposedly. But it's up for right? interpretation. It is. Yeah. Well, See, so configuration... Hold, hold, man- hold that thought. Hold, hold, hold that thought, Matt. Yeah. We'll come back okay. to CIS in a minute. Uh, I only got a couple more slides. So here's the top five of requirements. 2.2 stood out way, way beyond the rest. But, uh, you know, if you look at these things, have configuration mm-hmm. standards, um, you know, control your users, basically, is my paraphrase of requirement eight. Um, you know, but that encapsulates strong passwords, multi-factor authentication, and all that kind of stuff. Um Six point four is is have change processes and change procedures. You know, keep track of what you're doing. Uh, Eleven point five is you know file integrity monitoring. Uh, you know, PCI had to steer away from calling it file integrity and call it change detection mechanism. Matt, you're familiar that because mm-hmm. they got in trouble in the early days for naming a particular product as as an example of how to meet the requirement. Um. And then secure software development as a a major category. Um, Those are what came up the most. Now, but again, I want to jump back to to, uh, 2.2 because it was 30% of the mitigations. And somebody asked me, well, how many many, uh, techniques, attack techniques, does that represent? So I had to go back and count. It's 92 of them, which is more than a third of the attacks that are represented in the attack framework are addressed by a single PCI requirement. Hmm. That That is an amazingly significant statement for so many reasons. But just, you know, think about, you know, PCI has got some roughly 400 some odd controls and one single control addresses over a third of the real world attacks that are represented in the MITRE attack framework. And how many people are focused on real configuration management is part of their security program? Oh, that's that's too hard, man. Stop. But but well, what I'm just saying stop is, it's, it's craziness just, right now. But it's not. You, look, it, we see the news every week, Paul. We see it on multiple shows. We cover it seven times a week on this Boy, network. Down to misconfiguration leads to compromise, right? Yes. And misconfiguration yep. is always top of mind. But yet, you, when you look at product releases, you look at product announcements, you look at companies being funded in this space. How many of them are going after the core? component here of making sure your configurations are right Mm. to prevent these attacks so and this is where i want to bring up cis again because i happened to be on the phone yesterday with a couple folks from cis who you know coincidentally or not i used to work with way back in the nsa days Uh, but i was talking to the executive vice president and general manager for security best practices of cis that sounds very impressive um and 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 we were talking about my work here having you know having mapped the attack framework to PCI and I had gotten long story but I had gotten wind that CIS had been talking to the PCI council recently about mapping uh, CIS controls to PCI and and attack framework came up in the conversation so I'm like hey I know people there we're going to talk and we happened to have the conversation yesterday and and we basically were going down the same road we're starting to go down now in that uh, you know there's basic things that should be done that 
you know, many organizations like CIS try to, be, you know, give comprehensive but reasonable, uh, you know, easily followable, uh, you know, advice on how to do the things. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that they said yesterday was, you know, they were looking at the CIS top 20 controls and they've been talking to companies that try to implement them and follow them. And they, you know, their experience is, well, you know, these companies, they'll start programs that they're going to implement the CIS top 20 controls, whatever they call them. And they spend a year just working on the first control. Mm -hmm. And they get into the second year and they start dabbling into two and three. And they're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, it takes a long time to implement what everybody considers to be the basic hygiene. You know, they were referring to referring to it as cyber hygiene. Um so what they've been doing, and they had an, I got an email about it. They were telling me about it. So it's a black hat announcement. They've come up with some new program where they're 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 basically trying to go through Matt an exercise of prioritizing the CIS controls, mm. even beyond the twenty that they have. Well, I, I mean the the CIS twenty is the old SANS top twenty, right? Correct. Basically, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it, but when you look at a CIS benchmark, there's mm. literally hundreds of requirements for variations. So this gets back to Paul's point earlier, is that the CIS benchmark varies based on your operating system and in other yep. environments, right? So you have all these CIS benchmarks with literally hundreds of configuration checks in them. Now, what mm -hmm. CIS used to do is they used to have, what was it called, measurable, or there was some sort of like uh, priority in them, like these are measurable, these are maybe not, I can't remember the exact term, but it would be very interesting for them to come up with a more granular prioritization scheme in those CIS benchmarks to help people focus on what are the top configuration All areas audio. that they should focus on. Now you're back. Oh, sorry. Hello? Hello. Yeah, well, I can hear you. I, I was saying, you guys, I, I would you like... You guys went dark on me for a minute. Sorry. Oh, got it. Sorry. I was saying it would be nice for CIS to give us a little more granular prioritization uh, than what they have t traditionally done in the CIS benchmarks. Because then I, we could take hundreds of controls and break them down into, look, these are the, the 15 or 20 out of the hundreds that are the most uh, impactful uh, for your configuration program. Right. Yeah. Now... So the the benchmarks are interesting, and I and I want to share this this sort of last final, I don't know if it's the last, but uh, a, a nuance about requirement two point two in PCI, uh, and this is where I get into arguments with people about PCI is very prescriptive or it's not prescriptive. I personally think it's not terribly prescriptive, and two point two in particular. What two point two says is develop secure configuration standards for all the systems in your environment based on industry accepted standards such as CIS benchmarks and so on and so forth. What I usually see when I see the configuration standard document from my PCI customers is we follow the CIS benchmark and we follow everything in the CIS benchmark and that's what we use as our configuration standard. And that's pretty much it. Hmm. And I, I, you know, go apoplectic. Uh, I, well, I, I used to get apoplectic. Now I'm much more calm. Uh, and, and I try to explain to my customers, well, okay, 
the there's the CIS benchmark. It has hundreds of controls. You're supposed to take that, sit down, look at the 300 controls, figure out which ones are meaningful to you and your environment mm-hmm. and what you're doing, uh-huh. which ones do apply, which ones don't apply. If you want to prioritize them, that's fine. But then you should have a configuration standard that says we're implementing 200 of the 300 controls and here they are. I never see that. And I harp with my teammates, my coworkers, because we, we, we as an industry, a QSA industry, I can't speak for everybody, but we tend to get very uh, lenient on the documentation, like a configuration standard. And when I presented this to my team, we were, I had excited people. It's like, wow, we've got ammunition now to go to our customers and say, this is why you should really be doing a, a more decent job with your configuration standard mm-hmm. and thus your secure configurations. It's because so much of the attack framework, which is real world attacks that are happening to real customers, real companies like you, um, here's a good reason. Here's 92 out of 266 reasons why you should be paying more than lip service to your configuration standards. But Jeff, the, and I know the that question, the PCI world's not unique. We've seen it in all verticals, mm-hmm. right? The Paul? question that, that, that I would ask, uh, having implemented the CAS benchmarks in a number of different environments, is mm-hmm. if you've done proper configuration management, when you did that, what broke when you tried to implement it? And it, mm-hmm. you know their answer to that is going to tell you whether or not they've tried to do it or not. Because... If right. you do take the CAS benchmarks and try to implement yep. them as they are, at least a couple of things are going to break. Potentially. Potentially yep. out that, of the box. That is the challenge with configuration management. Mm-hmm. It is There are subjectivity aspects into what is that baseline that you're going to set to validate yourself against. I could meet the CIS benchmark for password policy by saying, well, I only care about five-character passwords, yeah. even though the benchmark yeah, and, and says break, it has to be longer, break right? break is subjective, right? Like what, what caused pain that you had to back out, mm. right? And, right. Yeah. And those are the things you might want to... Especially in Linux when you to. have to do all the permission changes on certain directories and files and stuff like that. I mean, there's a ton of... Why doesn't my Apache work anymore? Yeah. Or, <laughs> right, because it needs root access, but you change all your permissions not to have root access, right? Well, and that's the struggle with containers, yeah. right? You yeah. do uh, configure to that secure standard and then realize that, oh, that's going to break it. So I got to back it out. And, and, and by breaking it, it means like I can run it and do that secure configuration, but it also means I need to re-architect. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between changing configuration, having a more secure configuration, and having to re-architect your application. I ran into this with containers, and I was like, this means I basically need more containers to do mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. of a microservices architecture to split that out. That's an architecture change, mm-hmm. very different from just configuration changes that I can secure that one container, right? Yep. And those are things. So it's not just like what broke, but like what's your roadmap to getting to the secure configuration? And the other really important question is, is that even worth it? Yeah. Well, is now it we, worth it? Now we get into the whole tech debt conversation, right? Because re-architecture in some respects mm-hmm. is a tech debt item. Yeah. But tech debt doesn't get you to market faster. It doesn't no. get features out faster. It slows you down. Well, then it ties in the whole risk equation. Is that really worth it for my organization to re-architect to get to that secure configuration? Mm-hmm. Is the juice worth the squeeze, basically? 
Right, but it's what we come look, down to in configuration. Yes, but if you look at a tax, sometimes the answer is, yeah, so, I need yeah, to do yeah, it. Yeah, 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 but that's going to differ per application, per environment, per organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think at the end of the day, the problem that we see too often is that, uh, you know, for, for many reasons, reasons, companies look for not the easy way out, but the cheapest way out. Yeah. Well, it, they don't they don't want to do more than they have to do. Um, and, and the trick, I think, is to try to help them to do more within the confines of we don't want to we don't want to invest a whole lot of this and, and emphasize and try to teach them and, and make them understand why it's important to do these things, even though they might be a little bit more costly than you want to expect. But the payoff is you don't have bad things happen to you at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that's one of my gripes with PCI, Jeff. You and I have talked about mm -hmm. this before, is that people look at PCI as a checklist. And what they're Absolutely. trying to do is mitigate how much of those boxes they need to check across their entire environment. And that is not a risk management strategy. That is check the box for the sake of checking the box. Yep. Well, and, and I agree with you in that respect, but there's also so many companies that PCI is the only thing that's making them do any kind of security other than, you know, the whims of the board or whatever to, to try to appease maybe some bigger, you know, uh, key customers or something like that. And, and, and that's changing. I mean, more companies are, you know, aware these days that they need to do something, but uh, you know, I, I still deal with companies to this day where they're more invested in what I call the dodging security uh, rather than actually doing the security because their perception is, oh, it's PCI, it's onerous, we've been told it's onerous, so let's you know let's shift it off to a third party let's uh, let somebody else deal with it and and ironically they can do that but very often they're not shifting what they ultimately care about the most which is liability yeah and i think a lot of that comes down to a report on compliance and the the pass all or fail uh mm -hmm. issues with the rock right is if I'm not passing all of these, then I'm going to fail my PCI audit. Therefore, I'm not PCI compliant. Therefore, how do I shrink my environment so I can meet all the requirements in the scope of PCI, which is cardholder data, the, thus mm -hmm. network segmentation, micro segmentation to get it out of scope so I can do all those things on the smallest environment that I can so I pass the rock so I'm compliant, but I'm not necessarily secure because all these other systems don't have much security in them at all. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I, I have a customer right now that um, has an e-commerce environment that they've uh, allegedly completely outsourced to a third party. So according to PCI rules, they get to do PCI, the short form. Um the checkout, you know, you know, you can you can buy stuff, you know, uh, fill your shopping cart. But when you go to checkout and give your payment information, that's moved to a third party site. It's completely off the merchant e-commerce site, supposedly. And and when you do that, if you do it correctly, uh, your your responsibility for reporting your PCI compliance is minimal because you're claiming that you never see credit card mm. data, it never touches your environment, it never touches your network or systems. So you're not transmitting, processing, storing, um, 
it's done by somebody else. And the somebody else needs to be PCI compliant themselves. So you're supposed to only use a PCI compliant provider of those types of e-commerce services, mm-hmm. hosting services, website yep. development services. Um, but the customer that I have right now is a merchant that is that supposedly has this third party that's doing their website for them that then in turn goes to another third party that does the actual uh, you know payment process and the actual checkout. Um, and in theory, when you're doing the short form, it doesn't mean that all the PCI requirements go away. It just means somebody else is doing them on your behalf. And I have this sneaking suspicion that the merchant obviously is not doing any kind of pen testing or web app testing or vulnerability scanning of their e-commerce site because it's outsourced. So they're not doing it. The middleman, which I guess probably should be doing, I can easily see them making the argument, well, we got our PCI compliance, but we just, you know, we just uh, made sure we looked at our infrastructure and not specific customers because that's ridiculous. We've got 10,000 customers. We're not going to do a pen test for all of their individual e-commerce sites. We're not going to wet, you know, do a web security test of all their different sites. That's on them. And they can sort of say that and get away with it. And then the you know the the actual payment processor at the end that's actually doing the transaction, they're PCI compliant. They're, they've just got their little piece that's probably served in an iframe and and hopefully, or maybe it's an API and and somebody's looked at it, and that's on them. My concern is that I'm looking at an e-commerce site for my retail customer, and I'm like, ah. I really want to know if somebody's actually scanning this thing or if anybody's done any web app testing or any penetration testing of this site because I know my customer directly hasn't. And I I suspect that it's one of these scenarios where everybody's reporting strictly on what they have to do for PCI compliance and and something falls through the cracks because they all reasonably say, well, that's my, not my responsibility. That's somebody else's responsibility. And that happens more often Look, the, uh, but it's interesting. But, 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 but you know, we did interview. Uh, uh, I did an interview with Farah from NetSparker mm-hmm. earlier. We're talking about the difference between DAS, and this is very much a parallel to what we're talking about early with MITRE ATT&CK, and that there's different techniques within all the different categories, right? Not all DAS are, are made the same. I would say if you're not doing regular scans of any kind of your mm-hmm. web application, especially if it's related to an in scope for PCI, like. There's, I would use the term negligence there, right? Also, not all DAS are created equal. And Farrah and I had a very candid conversation. Obviously, Farrah's, you know, what, at at least 13 or maybe more, 16 years or something into, 14 years into creating a DAS, right? I've spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time with web application scanners, and they're not all created equal. And but we, we kind of create these two different categories of like the kind of uh, lightweight DAS, as we called them, and mm. the ones that are actually emulating a browser and making that balance between performance. Can you hear my mic? Did I like knock a cable out or nope, something? Or is good. that my headphones? Yeah, you're um, good. So the, the three that get stool for me in all of vulnerability scanning, whether it's web apps or anything else, is performance. False positives and false negatives, Mm -hmm. right? You want to scan as fast as possible, eliminate false positives and false negatives as much as possible. Mm -hmm. You need to have a product 
that is solely focused on that, right? Especially when it comes to web application scanners, because there are so many different vulnerabilities, so many different types of web applications out there, so many technologies. And uh, I, I, I'm kind of frightened that there are organizations out there that are in scope of the PCI and have a web application and aren't doing even lightweight DAS scanning. But, but Jeff brings up a very interesting point when it comes to third-party risk management. Uh, I had Ala uh, on from Forrester earlier, and I spent a lot of time in third-party vendor management in my early days of compliance. Look, there's some precedence around this, Jeff, at least in the financial mm -hmm. spaces with Graham Leach Bliley, because the regulators came in and said, look, you can outsource the function, but you can't outsource the risk. So you have right. to do validation of your third parties. Now, it gets complex when you have fourth and fifth party relationships in check, but where does PCI focus on the third party risk management aspects of that scenario? Because that's if I'm a QSA, which I'm not, uh, I never have been, just like you, Jeff. I, I've gone through a lot of PCI certifications with a couple no, companies. I was a QSA for 10 years. Oh, okay. I currently, I'm not a QSA. Right. I was never. I never went through. I, I created a, a, a qualified certified company, but not. I wasn't a QSA. I had QSAs on my staff. But where right. does third-party risk management fall into the realms of PCI? Because the scenario you just laid out, to me, mm -hmm. is a third-party risk management discussion. Yep. Well, and and... It does fall under PCI, and it's and it's been that way since version three, and it's PCI requirement twelve eight, for those that are keeping tab at home, uh, and and it basically says, you know, make sure you're listing out all your third parties, you know, service providers, um, make sure that they're if not PCI compliant outright, that they're following the you know, the goals of PCI. Uh, as a QSA, we could never fail our merchant customer for using a non-compliant third party. The third party had to have contractual language that said that they're following, they're keeping, you know, mm. credit card data and their customer data safe and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, got into a legal political thing. But what they added, which in theory is supposed to address this, is they ask for, in keeping tabs of all your third parties, you're supposed to maintain some sort of list or tracking of basically who's doing what for PCI. So in mm -hmm. theory, you know, think of the 12 requirements. You know, you go down the list of 12 requirements and the merchant is, yeah, we've got one through eight, but we've got a hosting provider. So they're, you know, or, or we're using AWS. So requirement nine, which is the security of the data center, physical security in the old days, but it's evolved. Okay, that's that's our hosting provider. So AWS takes that as, on as responsibility. Uh, Ten and eleven, twelve. You know that's that's on us. So for every one of the service providers, third parties, they're supposed to have what is um, has come to be known as what's we what we call a responsibility matrix. Who's doing what in terms of the PCI requirements? And that's that's pretty well understood and pretty well accomplished for larger merchants that are doing the QSA led, you know, PCI assessment and getting a report on compliance or rock mm. where it's not often understood and clear is for the, everybody else that's just doing the self-assessment questionnaire. They, they, it, it's there. They're supposed to do the 12, eight and they're supposed to have that, but they're doing it on their own. And, and that's a lot of where this checkbox mentality comes from in the first place for PCI, frankly, is the fact that you could self-assess and say, yeah, yeah, we're doing all this check, 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 check. We're done. Um, it's in there, the enforcement and, and the 
not even the enforcement, the embracing of how important it is to understand is somebody doing these things for you because somebody should be, mm-hmm. all these things should be being done. Right. And that's implied if you have a third party that has their own uh, rock and their own attestation of compliance, they're supposed to be doing it for you. And really that's all the merchant can do is we, we went to our third mm-hmm. party, they, they have an AOC, okay, we're done. But there's that extra step of, well, let's look at the responsibilities matrix, 1 through 12, who's Uh doing what. Right. It's there. It's not, I'd say, baked in yet that everybody embraces it and understands the significance and the importance of doing it and doing it well. But it's at least least there, and it it can be done. Yeah. I I mean, what you're doing now is is putting the requirements of mapping out those different – uh, control areas in PCI and which ones are being covered by your third parties. You hope you have contracts or some sort of third party management program in place to validate that those controls are in place so that you can say, yep, they've met the requirement. It's not me, it's them. But still, it puts the QSA, I think, in a little bit of a bind is because can I really go out and validate that the third party's actually doing that to make sure that the rock can be passed, for example? Me individually, yeah, I do that all the time. Good, but I can I can rarely get my customers to act on it mm. because contractually, all they have to do is, do they have an AOC? Don't read the fine print and see what they're actually doing for you. They, it, it's again, it's the checkbox mentality, and you can't always fight against the checkbox mentality, no matter how well intentioned anybody is. Yeah, uh, I I had an experience many years ago. I won't say who the the client was, but they were um, they were a service provider, and they had acquired a and they're actually a payment processor, and they had acquired a whole line of business from another company. And in doing the acquisition, all the payment processing that they were doing was being done on a mainframe that was still owned by the original company. Mm. But they sort of sold all the the DBAs and the application. That was part of the package. That was part of the new company, which was my customer. But when it came down to is the data being data being encrypted on all the transaction data being encrypted on the database, my customer was saying, well, we don't own the mainframe, so therefore we don't control the database that's on the mainframe. That's all the original company that we sold it from. We can't control it. And then we went, and, but they did get a, a an AOC. They got a rock from the original company because they acknowledged that there was now sort of this third-party service provider type of relationship. And But the other company had a, a, a rock that was written by Trustway, by the way. <laughs> and it said... And it said, yeah, we own the mainframe, but we don't own any of the data that's on it. That's up to the customer. So it was one of these, well, the other guy's doing it. It's not our responsibility. And the net result was all these gazillions of transactions that were on the database were unencrypted. Yeah. Yep. Yes, got to love that third-party piece. It's oh, tricky. Yeah, I know. It's it, it to me it's part of the challenges of a compliance program for the sake of compliance, not a compliance program to mitigate risks. And you and I again, Jeff have talked about this. W- one of the areas where I think PCI could do a better job is aspects of the risk aspects of the PCI DSS. I think um looking at it from a broader risk perspective can really uh, help you align what 
compliance requirements really matter to mitigate risks. It was interesting. You know, we've well, been it's going difficult to recommend prioritization, Matt, because it's so specific to the organization. It, it is, but it's a risk discussion. Yeah. And when you Goes only back to the math and science that yes, but when you only yeah. think about it from a compliance perspective you lose aspects of, of the risk perspective yeah, and yeah, the prioritization yeah. components of that. Well, and I, I want to say this explicitly because I don't know that everybody gets this all the time. I agree with everything that everybody is saying about the risk and how it's different and, and how it's subjective, but it's important to remember that one company's risk threshold may be significantly different yes. from the next company's. There is no baseline on risk if you're trying to apply a risk a risk based approach to any individual company agreed meaning one company might be completely okay with all sorts of critical vulnerabilities in their environment because they're basically they're generating so much revenue from the thing they can take the hit and it's a, just uh -huh. a cost of doing business if they get a little glitch here and there like a breach whereas another company might be you know if they have a problem they might be completely out of business and so they've got to do all those things, even though there's only a 1% or a 10th of 1% chance that something bad could happen, mm -hmm. but it's that critical to them. Um, that, I don't think that – I I don't assume that everybody gets the nuance of that aspect of the risk discussion, and so right. I wanted to make sure that – No, I but you bring up there. a very good point because risk and opportunity are – two sides, potentially the same coin, right? If I have enough opportunity, I have enough revenue, maybe I'm willing to take more risks because the opportunity is so great that I'm willing to take that risk. That is a risk yeah. management discussion. Compliance, most compliance frameworks don't necessarily take that into account. But if you're doing it from a risk perspective and you're really focusing on the controls to mitigate risk, then your compliance checkbox mentality changes a little bit. But you're right, Jeff. It's going to vary greatly from organization to organization. But let me flip it back on you for a minute, Matt. How does that differ from every sales and marketing message of every vendor that we've encountered over the last umpty-ump years? It's the same question, and it's yep. the same problem. You know, you know, where I see vendors telling you, you've got a problem, you've got a high risk. I'm like, how do you know what my risk is? You right. You know, you're not walking in my shoes. Well, Don't that's... presume to know what my risk is. Right. And, and that's part of the problem with, with vendor marketing is mm -hmm. until you understand the organization you're trying to sell to and the challenges and risks they're trying to face, how can you make that bold statement? But they do it all the time. Right. It's all about the – and if you can scare them enough, that's where the FUD comes in. Mm -hmm. and, and we all do FUD. I, I mean there's no way to avoid FUD at some level. But we like to talk about all the FUD that everybody else does. But how else do you, how else do you convince people without scaring them a little bit about what, what, what bad things could happen? True. True. I mean, in the Discord, we were talking uh, a little bit, chatting about, you know, the board only cares about checkboxes. Actually, the board should care about risks, not checkboxes. Mm -hmm. But how many boards truly care about risks? There are good boards out there that truly care about the risks, which is a risk mm -hmm. management discussion. But there's other boards that are like, hey, just check the boxes, make sure we're good, and we just keep on going. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well. At some point, so I'd, anyway. I'd like to, but I'd like to debunk FUD into its different components yeah. So after talking with Doug, the, uh -huh. the doubt uh, aspect uh, in, in you know data point in FUD is very different from the uncertainty and very different from the fear, mm -hmm. 
right? Yep. And, and that's one thing that I think uh, Doug Harper made us realize in a, a segment we did last night, right, yep. is, you know, we can – doubt is something that is in human nature. We don't want to believe things are necessarily bad. It's very different from uncertainty, which we can mm-hmm. measure, right? right, and very yep. different from fear yes. as well. Yes, true. Mm. I think that's a good uh, good point to end on. Jeff, thank you very much for appearing uh, with us here on Enterprise Security Weekly. Matt, nice having you in studio. Always a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching. Thanks to our Discord participants uh, and uh, John Lucatus. Uh, oh, awesome segment there. So, yep. uh, And we- he was listening to my segment, and he, and he messaged me privately on discord because i had offered to him I was like man if you want to get off the of nist 853 and talk about some real compliance there you go your stuff so we're gonna we're gonna try to hook up in the next couple weeks outstanding thank you everyone for listening to and watching this edition of enterprise security weekly we'll see you next time <laughs>